Hi, everybody. Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Great Classic Literature here at Carla Reads the Classics. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I present to you yet again a story from the master of the short story, one of the greatest French writers of all time, Guy de Maupassant. And this story is uh, from the 1880s. It was published in the 1880s, and it's called A Family. Roughly, it's about the reunion of two long-lost friends, George and Simon, who haven't seen each other in 15 years. It's a great short, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining me. And please see the episode details for ways in which you can obtain your Carla Reads the Classics merchandise, and also for ways to make a donation to the podcast and or to subscribe to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please stay tuned. A Family by Guy de Maupassant. I was to see my old friend, Simon Radovan, of whom I had lost sight for 15 years. At one time, he was my most intimate friend, the friend who knows one's thoughts, with whom one passes long, quiet, happy evenings, to whom one tells one's secret love affairs, and who seems to draw out those rare, ingenious, delicate thoughts born of that sympathy that gives a sense of repose. For years, we had scarcely been separated. We had lived, traveled, thought and dreamed together, had liked the same things, had admired the same books, understood the same authors, trembled with the same sensations, and very often laughed at the same individuals whom we understood completely by merely exchanging a glance. Then he married. He married, quite suddenly, a little girl from the provinces who had come to Paris in search of a husband. How in the world could that little, thin, insipidly fair girl, with her weak hands, her light, vacant eyes, and her clear, silly voice, who was exactly like a hundred thousand marriageable dolls, have picked up that intelligent, clever young fellow? How can anyone understand these things? No doubt he had hoped for happiness, simple, quiet, and long-enduring happiness, in the arms of a good, tender, and faithful woman. He had seen all that in the transparent looks of that schoolgirl with light hair. He had not dreamed of the fact that an active, living, and vibrating man grows weary of everything as soon as he understands the stupid reality, unless, indeed, he becomes so brutalized that he understands nothing whatever. What would he be like when I met him again, still lively, witty, lighthearted, and enthusiastic, or in a state of mental torpor induced by provincial life? A man may change greatly in the course of 15 years. The train stopped at a small station, and as I got out of the carriage, a stout, a very stout man with red cheeks and a big stomach rushed up to me with open arms, exclaiming, George! I embraced him, but I had not recognized him, and then I said, in astonishment, By Jove, you have not grown thin. And he replied with a laugh, What did you expect? Good living, a good table, and good nights. Eating and sleeping, that is my existence. I looked at him closely, trying to discover in that broad face the features I held so dear. His eyes alone had not changed, but I no longer saw the same expression in them. And I said to myself, if the expression be the reflection of the mind, the thoughts in that head are not what they used to be formerly, those thoughts which I knew so well. Yet his eyes were bright, full of happiness and friendship, but they had not that clear, intelligent expression which shows as much as words the brightness of the intellect. 
Suddenly, he said, Here are my two eldest children, a girl of fourteen who was almost a woman and a boy of thirteen, in the dress of a boy from Lycee, came forward in a hesitating and awkward manner, and I said in a low voice, Are they yours? Of course they are, he replied, laughing. How many have you? Five. There are three more at home. He said this in a proud, self-satisfied, almost triumphant manner, and I felt profound pity mingled with a feeling of vague contempt for this vainglorious and simple reproducer of his species. I got into a carriage, which he drove himself, and we set off through the town, a dull, sleepy, gloomy town, where nothing was moving in the streets except a few dogs and two or three maidservants, here and there, a shopkeeper standing at his door took off his hat, and Simon returned his salute and told me the man's name, no doubt to show me that he knew all the inhabitants personally, and the thought struck me that he was thinking of becoming a candidate, a candidate for the Chamber of Deputies that dream of all who bury themselves in the provinces. We were soon out of the town, and a carriage turned into a garden that was an imitation of a park, and stopped in front of a turreted house, which tried to look like a chateau. This is my den, said Simon, so that I might compliment him on it. It is charming, I replied. A lady appeared on the steps, dressed for company, and with company phrases already prepared. She was no longer the light-haired, insipid girl I had seen in church fifteen years previously, but a stout lady in curls and flounces, one of those ladies of uncertain age, without intellect, without any of those things that go to make a woman. In short, she was a mother, a stout, commonplace mother, a human breeding machine which procreates without any other preoccupation but her children and her cookbook. She welcomed me, and I went into the hall, where the children, ranged according to their height, seemed set out for review, like firemen before a mayor, and I said, Ah, ah, so these are the others. Simon, radiant with pleasure, introduced them, Jean, Sophie, and Gontran. The door of the drawing room was open. I went in, and the depths of an easy chair, I saw something trembling, a man, an old paralyzed man. Madame Redovan came forward and said, This is my grandfather, Monsieur. He is 87. And then she shouted into the shaking old man's ears, This is a friend of Simon's, Papa. The old gentleman tried to say good day to me, and he muttered, Ow, 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 and waved his hand, and I took a seat saying, You are very kind, Monsieur. Simon had just come in, and he said with a laugh, So, you have made Grandpapa's acquaintance. He is a treasure, that old man. He is the delight of the children. But he is so greedy that he almost kills himself at every meal. You have no idea what he would eat if he were allowed to do as he pleased. But you will see, you will see. He looks at all the sweets as if they were so many girls. You never saw anything so funny. You will see presently. I was then shown to my room to change my dress for dinner, and hearing a great clatter behind me on the stairs, I turned round and saw that all the children were following behind me and their father to do me honor, no doubt. My windows looked out across a dreary, interminable plain, an ocean of grass, of wheat, and of oats, without a clump of trees or any rising ground, a striking and melancholy picture of the life which they must be leading in that house. A bell rang. It was for dinner, and I went downstairs. Madame Redovan took my arm in a ceremonious manner, and we passed into the dining room. 
A footman wheeled in the old man in his armchair. He gave a greedy and curious look at the dessert as he turned his shaking head with difficulty from one dish to the other. Simon rubbed his hands. "'You will be amused,' he said, and all the children understanding that I was going to be indulged with the sight of their greedy grandfather began to laugh while their mother merely smiled and shrugged her shoulders, and Simon, making a speaking trumpet of his hands, shouted at the old man, "'This evening there is sweet creamed rice!' The wrinkled face of the grandfather brightened, and he trembled more violently from head to foot, showing that he had understood and was very pleased. The dinner began. "'Just look!' Simon whispered. The old man did not like the soup and refused to eat it, but he was obliged to do it for the good of his health, and the footman forced the spoon into his mouth, while the old man blew so energetically so as not to swallow the soup that it was scattered like a spray all over the table and over his neighbors. The children writhed with laughter at the spectacle, while their father, who was also amused, said, "'Is not the old man comical?' During the whole meal, they were taken taken up solely with him. He devoured the dishes on the table with his eyes and tried to seize them and pull them over to him with his trembling hands. They put them almost within his reach to see his useless efforts, his trembling clutches at them, the piteous appeal of his whole nature, of his eyes, of his mouth, and of his nose as he smelt them, and he slobbered on the table napkin with eagerness while uttering inarticulate grunts, and the whole family was highly amused at this horrible and grotesque scene. Then they put a tiny morsel on his plate, and he ate with feverish gluttony, in order to get something more as soon as possible, and when the sweetened rice was brought in, he nearly had a fit, and groaned with greediness, and Goch and Gontran called him out. You have eaten too much already. You have, you can have no more, and they pretended not to give him any. Then he began to cry. He cried and trembled more violently than ever, while all the children laughed. At last, however, they gave him his helping, a very small piece, and as he ate the first mouthful, he made a comical noise in his throat and the movement with his neck, as ducks do when they swallow too large a morsel. And when he had swallowed it, he began to stamp his feet, so as to get more. I was seized with pity for this saddening and ridiculous tantalus, and interposed on his behalf. Come, give him a little more rice. But Simon replied, Oh no, my dear fellow, if he were to eat too much, it would harm him at his age. I held my tongue and thought over those words. Oh, ethics, oh, logic, oh, wisdom, at his age. So they deprived him of his only remaining pleasure out of regard for his health? his health. What would he do with it, inert and trembling wreck that he was? They were taking care of his life, so they said. His life? How many days? Ten, twenty, fifty, or a hundred? Why, for his own sake? Or to preserve some time longer the spectacle of his impotent greediness in the family? There was nothing left for him to do in this life, nothing whatever. He had one single wish left, one sole pleasure, why not grant him that last solace until he died? After we had played cards for a long time, I went up to my room and to bed. I was low-spirited and sad, 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 and I sat at my window. Not a sound could be heard outside but the beautiful warbling of a bird in a tree somewhere in the distance. 
no doubt the bird was singing in a low voice during the night, to lull his mate, who was asleep on her eggs. And I thought of my poor friend's five children, and pictured him to myself, snoring by the side of his ugly wife. Thanks for listening, everybody. And up next, I have a short for you from Herman Melville. Yes, the Herman Melville of the classic Great White Whale Moby Dick fame. And this story is called The Fiddler. It was published in 1854, and it's narrated by Helmstone, who is a character who is also a poet, quite like Melville himself. And The Fiddler is the story of Hotboy, and Hotboy is a master musician, and he plays a most enchanting fiddle. Now, because it's such a short classic, I won't give away too too much of the story, but I will say that there is an exploration, a theme of what does and what does not bring one happiness in life. And a few other things are explored as well. So it's such a great piece and I do hope you enjoy it. Thank you again for joining me here at Carla Reads the Classics. Please stay tuned as I give you The Fiddler by Herman Melville. So my poem is damned and immortal fame is not for me. I am nobody forever and ever intolerable fate. Snatching my hat, I dashed down the criticism and rushed out into Broadway, where enthusiastic throngs were crowding to a circus in a side street nearby, very recently started and famous for a capital clown. Presently, my old friend Standard rather boisterously accosted me. Well met, Helmstone, my boy. Ah, what's the matter? Haven't been committing murder. Ain't flying justice. You look wild. You have seen it then said I, of course, referring to the criticism. Oh, yes, I was there at the morning performance. Great clown, I assure you. But here comes Hotboy. Hotboy, Helmstone. Without having time or inclination to resent so mortifying a mistake, I was instantly soothed as I gazed on the face of the new acquaintance so unceremoniously introduced. His person was short and full with a juvenile, animated cast to it his complexion rurally ruddy, his eye sincere, cheery, and gray. His hair alone betrayed that he was not an overgrown boy. From his hair, I set him down as forty or more. Come, standard, he gleefully cried to my friend. Are you not going to the circus? The clown is inimitable, they say. Come, Mr. Helmstone, too. Come, both. And circus over, we'll take a nice stew and punch at Taylor's. The sterling content, good humor, and extraordinary ready sincere expression of his most singular new acquaintance acted upon me like magic. It seemed mere loyalty to human nature to accept an invitation from so unmistakably kind and honest a heart. During the circus before performance, I kept my eye more on Hot Boy than on the celebrated clown. Hot Boy was the sight for me. Such genuine enjoyment as his struck me to the soul with a sense of the reality of the thing called happiness. The jokes of the clown he seemed to roll under his tongue as ripe magnum bonhams. Now the foot, now the hand, was employed to attest his grateful applause. At any hit more than ordinary, he turned upon Standard and me to see if his rare pleasure was shared. In a man of forty, I saw a boy of twelve, and this too without the slightest abatement of my respect, because all was so honest and natural, every expression and attitude so graceful, with genuine good nature, that the marvelous juvenility of Hotboy assumed a sort of divine and immortal air, like that of some forever youthful god of Greece." 
but much as I gazed upon Hotboy and as much as I admired his air, yet the desperate mood in which I had first rushed from the house had not so entirely departed as not to molest me with, mom with momentary returns. But from these relapses I could rouse myself and swiftly glance round the broad amphitheater of eagerly interested and all applauding human faces. Hark, clap, thump, deafening huzzas. The vast assembly seemed frantic with acclamation. And what, mused I, had caused all this? Why the clown only comically grinned with one of his extra grins? Then I repeated in my mind that sublime passage in my poem in which Clothings and Argive vindicates the justice of the war. I, I thought I to myself, did I now leap into the ring there and repeat that identical passage, nay, and act the whole tragic poem before them? Would they applaud the poet as they applaud the clown? No, they would hoot me and call me doting or mad. Then what does this prove? Your infatuation or their insensibility? Perhaps both, but indubitably the first. But why wail? Do you seek admiration from the ad admirers of, of a buffoon? Call to mind the saying of the Athenian, who, when the people vociferously applauded in the forum, asked his friend in a whisper, what foolish thing had he said? Again, my eye swept the circus and fell on the ruddy radiance of the countenance of Hotboy. But its clear, honest cheeriness disdained my disdain. My intolerant pride was rebuked. And yet Hotboy dreamed not what magic reproof to a soul like mine sat on his laughing brow. At the very instant I felt the dart of the censure, his eye twinkled, his hand waved, his voice was lifted in jubilant delight at another joke of the inexhaustible clown. Circus over, we went to Taylor's. Among crowds of others, we sat down to our stews and punches at one of the small marble tables. Hotboy sat opposite to me. Though greatly subdued from his former hilarity, his face still shone with gladness. But added to this was a quality not so prominent before, a certain serene expression of leisurely, deep good sense, good sense and good humor in him joined hands as the conversation proceeded between the brisk standard and him, for I said little or nothing. I was more and more struck with the excellent judgment he evinced. In most of his remarks upon a variety of topics, Hotboy seemed intuitively to hit the exact line between enthusiasm and apathy. It was plain that while Hotboy saw the world pretty much as it was, yet he did not theoretically espouse its bright side nor its dark side. Rejecting all solutions, he but acknowledged facts. What he said, what was sad in the world, he did not superficially gainsay. What was glad in it, he did not cynically slur. And all which was to him personally enjoyable, he gratefully took to his heart. It was plain then, so it seemed at that moment at least, that his extraordinary cheerfulness did not arise either from deficiency or of thought. Suddenly remembering an engagement, he took up his hat, bowed pleasantly, and left us. Well, Helmstone, said Standard, inaudibly drumming on the slab, what do you think of your new acquaintance? The last two words tingled with a peculiar and novel significance. New acquaintance indeed, echoed I. Standard, I owe you a thousand thanks for introducing me to one of the most singular men I have ever seen. It needed the optical sight of such a man to believe in the possibility of his existence. You rather like him, then, said Standard, with ironical dryness. 
I hugely love and admire him, Standard. I wish I were hot boy. Ah, that's a pity now. There is only one hot boy in the world. This last remark set me to pondering again, and somehow it revived my dark mood. His wonderful cheerness, I suppose, said I, sneering with spleen, originates not less in a felicitous fortune than in a felicitous temper. His great mood sense is apparent, but great good sense may exist without sublime endowments. Nay, I take it in certain cases that good sense is simply owing to the absence of those, much more cheerfulness. Unpossessed of genius, Hotboy is eternally blessed. Ah, you would not think him an, ex an extraordinary genius, then? Genius? What? Such a short, fat fellow a genius. Genius like Cassius is lank. Ah, but could you not fancy that Hotboy might formerly have had genius, but luckily getting rid of it, at last fattened up? For a genius to get rid of his genius is as impossible as for a man in the galloping consumption to get rid of that. Ah, you speak very decidedly. Yes, Standard, cried I, increasing in spleen. Your cheery hot boy, after all, is no pattern, no less for you and me. With average abilities, opinions clear, because circumscribed, passions docile because they are feeble, a temper hilarious because he was born to it, how can your hot boy be made a reasonable example to a handy fellow like you or an ambitious dreamer like me? Nothing tempts him beyond common limit. In himself, he has nothing to restrain. By constitution, he, ex he is exempted from all moral harm. Could ambition but prick him, had he but once heard applause or endured contempt, a very different man would your hot boy be. Acquiescent and calm from the cradle to the grave, he obviously slides through the crowd. Ah, why do you say ah to me so strangely whenever I speak? Did you ever hear of Master Betty, the great English prodigy who long ago ousted the Siddons and the Kimballs from Jury Lane and made the whole town run mad with acclamation? The same, said Standard, once more inaudibly drumming on the slab. I looked at him perplexed. He seemed to be holding the master key of our theme in mysterious reserve, seemed to be throwing out his master Betty, too, to puzzle me only the more. What under heaven can master Betty, the great genius and prodigy, an English boy twelve years old, have to do with the poor commonplace plotter hot boy, an American of forty? Oh, nothing in the least. I don't imagine that they ever even saw each other. Besides, Master Betty must be dead by now and buried long ere this. Then why cross the ocean and rifle the grave to drag his remains into this living discussion? Absent-mindedness, I suppose. I humbly beg pardon. Proceed with your observations on Hotboy. You think he never had genius, quite too contented and happy and fat for that, ah? Huh? You think him no pattern for men in general— according affording no lesson of value to neglect to neglected merit genius ignored or impotent presumption rebuked all of which three amount to much the same thing you admire his cheerfulness while scorning his commonplace soul poor hot boy how sad that your very cheerfulness should by a by blow bring you despite i don't say i scorn him you are unjust i simply declare that he is no pattern for me a sudden noise at my side attracted my ear. Turning, I saw Hotboy again, who very blithely reseated himself on the chair he had left. I was behind time with my engagement, said Hotboy, so I thought I would run back and rejoin you. 
But come, you have sat long enough here. Let us go to my rooms. It's only a five-minute walk. If you will promise to fiddle for us, we will, said Standard. Fiddle, thought I. He's a jigumbop fiddler, then? No wonder genius declines to measure its pace to a fiddler's bow. My spleen was very strong on me now. I will gladly fiddle you your fill, replied Hotboy to Standard. Come on. In a few minutes, we found ourselves in the fifth story of a sort of storehouse in a lateral street to Broadway. It was curiously furnished with all sorts of odd furniture which seemed to have been obtained piece by piece at auctions of old-fashioned household stuff, but all was charmingly clean and cozy. Pressed by standard, Hotboy forthwith got out his dented old fiddle and, sitting down on a tall rickety stool, played away right merrily at Yankee Doodle and other off-handed dashing and disdainfully carefree airs. But common as were the tunes, I was transfixed by something miraculously superior in the style. Sitting there on the old stool, his rusty hat sideways cocked on his head, one foot dangling adrift, he plied the bow of an enchanter. All my moody discontent, every vestige of peevishness, fled. My whole splenetic soul capitulated to the magical fiddle. Something of an Orpheus, ah, said Standard, arching, archly nudging me beneath the left rib. And I, the charmed Brian, murmured I. The fiddle ceased. Once more, with redoubled curiosity, I gazed upon the easy, indifferent hot boy, but he entirely baffled inquisition. When leaving him, Standard and I were in the street once more, I earnestly conjured him to tell me who, in sober truth, this marvelous hot boy was. Why haven't you seen him? And didn't you yourself lay his whole anatomy open on the marble slab at Taylor's? What more can you possibly learn? Doubtless your own masterly insight has already put you in possession of all. You mock me, Standard. There is some mystery here. Tell me, I entreat you, who is hot boy? An extraordinary genius, Helmstone, said Standard, with sudden ardor, who in boyhood drained the whole flagon of glory, whose going from city to city was a going from triumph to triumph, one who has been an object of wonder to the wisest, been caressed by the loveliest, received the open homage of thousands on thousands of the rabble. But today he walks Broadway and no man knows him with you and me, the elbow of the hurrying clerk, and the pole of the remorseless omnibus shove him. He who has a hundred times been crowned with laurels now wears, as you see, a bungled beaver. Once fortune poured showers of gold into his lap as showers of laurel leaves upon his brow. Today, from house to house, he hies, teaching fiddling for a living. Crammed once with fame, he is now hilarious without it. With genius and without fame, he is happier than a king, more a prodigy now than ever. His true name? Let me whisper it in your ear. What? Oh, standard, myself as a child have shouted myself hoarse, applauding that very name in the theater. I have heard your poem was not very handsomely received, said standard, now suddenly shifting the subject. Not a word of that, for heaven's sake, cried I. If Cicero, traveling in the east, found sympathetic solace for his grief in beholding the arid overthrow of a once gorgeous city, shall not my petty affair be as nothing when I behold in Hotboy the vine and the rose climbing the shattered shafts of his tumbled temple of fame? Next day, 
I tore all my manuscripts, bought me a fiddle, and went to take regular lessons of Hot Boy. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Up next, I have for you another short, and this one is called The Use of Force. It was published in 1938, and it's written by William Carlos Williams. It basically details the struggle of a doctor with one of his young patients. Thanks again for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics as I give you The Use of Force by William Carlos Williams. They were new patients to me. All I had was the name Olson. Please come down as soon as you can. My daughter is very sick. When I arrived, I met the mother, a big startled-looking woman, very clean and apologetic, who merely said, Is this the doctor? And let me in. In the back, she added. You must excuse us, doctor. We have her in the kitchen where it is warm. It is very damp here sometimes. The child was fully dressed and sitting on her father's lap near the kitchen table. He tried to get up, but I motioned for him not to bother took off my overcoat, and started to look things over. I could see that they were all very nervous, eyeing me up and down distrustfully. As often in such cases, they were telling me more than they had to, and it was up to me to tell them. That's what they were spending three dollars. That's why they were spending three dollars on me. The child was fairly eating me up with her cold, steady eyes and no expression to her face, whatever. She did not move and seemed inwardly quiet, an unusually attractive little thing, and as her strong and as strong as a heifer in appearance, but her face was flushed, she was breathing rapidly, and I realized that she had a high fever. She had magnificent blonde hair in profusion, one of those picture children often reproduced in advertising leaflets and the photogravure sections of the Sunday papers. She's had a fever for three days began the father, and we don't know what it comes from. My wife has given her things, you know, like people do, but it don't do no good. And there's been a lot of sickness around, so we thought you'd better look her over and tell us what is the matter. As doctors often do, I took a trial shot at it as a point of departure. Has she had a sore throat? Both parents answered me together. No, she says her throat don't hurt her. Does your throat hurt you? added the mother to the child, but the little girl's expression didn't change, nor did she move her eyes from my face. Have you looked? I tried to, said the mother, but I couldn't see. As it happens, we had been having a number of cases of diphtheria in the school to which this child went during that month, and we were all quite apparently thinking of that, though no one had as yet spoken of the thing. Well, I said, suppose we take a look at that throat first. I smiled in my best professional manner, and asking for the child's first name, I said, Come on, Matilda, open your mouth, and let's take a look at your throat. Nothing doing. Aw, come on, I coaxed. Just open your mouth wide, and let me take a look. Look, I said, opening both hands wide. I haven't anything in my hands. Just open up, and let me see. Such a nice man put in mother. Look how kind he is to you. Come on, do what he tells you to. He won't hurt you. At that, I ground my teeth in disgust. If only they wouldn't use the word hurt, I might be able to get somewhere. But I did not allow myself to be hurried or disturbed, but speaking quietly and slowly, I approached the child again. 
As I moved my chair a little nearer, suddenly with one cat-like movement, both her hands clawed instinctively for my eyes, and she almost reached them too. In fact, she knocked my glasses flying, and they fell, though unbroken, several feet away from me on the kitchen floor. Both mother and father almost turned themselves inside out in embarrassment and apology. You bad girl, said the mother, taking her hand and shaking her by one arm. Look what you've done, the nice man. For heaven's sake, I broke in. Don't call me a nice man to her. I'm here to look at her throat on the chance that she might have diphtheria and possibly die of it. But that's nothing to her. Look here, I said to the child. We're going to look at your throat. You're old enough to understand what I'm saying. Will you open it now by yourself, or shall we have to open it for you? Not a move. Even her expression hadn't changed. Her breaths, however, were coming faster and faster. Then the battle began. I had to do it. I had to have a throat culture for her own protection. But first, I told the parents that it was entirely up to them. I explained the danger, but said that, I would not insist on a throat examination so long as they would take the responsibility. If you don't do what the doctor says, you'll have to go to the hospital, the mother admonished her severely. Oh, yeah? I had to smile to myself. After all, I had already fallen in love with the little savage brat. The parents were contemptible to me. In the ensuing struggle, they grew more and more abject, crushed, exhausted, while she surely rose to magnificent heights of insane fury of effort, bred of her terror of me. The father tried his best, and he was a big man, but the fact that she was his daughter, his shame at her behavior, and his dread of hurting her made him release her just at the critical times when I had almost achieved success, till I wanted to kill him. But his dread also that she might have diphtheria made him tell me to go on. Go on, though, he himself was almost fainting while the mother moved back and forth behind us, raising and lowering her hands in an agony of apprehension. Put her on front of your lap, I ordered, and hold her and hold both her wrists. But as soon as he did, the child let out a scream. Don't, you're hurting me. Let go of my hands. Let me go, I tell you. Then she shrieked terrifyingly, hysterically. Stop it. Stop it. You're killing me. You think she can stand it, doctor? said the mother. You can get out, said the husband to his wife. Do you want her to die of diphtheria? Come on now, hold her, I said. Then I grabbed the child's head with my left hand and tried to get the wooden tongue depressor between her teeth. She fought with clenched teeth desperately. But now I also had grown furious at a child. I tried to hold myself down, but I couldn't. I know how to expose a throat for inspection, and I did my best. When finally I got the wooden spatula behind the last teeth and just to the point of it and just the point of it into the mouth cavity, she opened up for an instant, but before I could see anything, she came down again and gripping the wooden blade between her molars, she reduced it to splinters before I could get it out again. Aren't you ashamed? The mother yelled at her. Aren't you ashamed to act like that in front of the doctor? Get me a smooth handled spoon of some sort, I told the mother. We're going through with this. The child's mouth was already bleeding. Her tongue was cut and she was screaming in wild, hysterical shrieks. Perhaps I should have desisted and come back in an hour or more. No doubt it would have been better. But I have seen at least two children lying dead in bed of neglect in such cases. And feeling that I must get a diagnosis now or never, I went at it again. 
but the worst of it was that I too had got beyond reason. I could have torn the child apart in my own fury and enjoyed it. It was a pleasure to attack her. My face was burning with it. The damned little brat must be protected against her own idiocy, one says to oneself at such times. Others must be protected against her. It is a social necessity. And all these things are true, but a blind fury, a feeling of adult shame, bred of a longing for muscular release are the operatives. One goes on to the end. In a final unreasoning assault, I overpowered the child's neck and jaws. I forced the heavy silver spoon back of her teeth and down her throat till she gagged. And there it was, both tonsils covered with membrane. She had fought valiantly to keep me from knowing her secret. She had been hiding that sore throat for three days at least and lying to her parents in order to escape just such an outcome as this. Now truly she was furious. She had been on the defensive before now, but now she attacked, tried to get off her father's lap and fly at me while tears of defeat blinded her eyes. And that concludes this episode of Carlet Reads the Classics. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Please check the episode details to find out how you can subscribe to the podcast or how you can make a contribution. And also, uh, there will be a link there to the merchandise store. So again, thank you so much for listening here at Carlet Reads the Classics. Until next time. Mm-hmm.